columnist, activist and photographer. All of these sound very interesting indeed. Ayabonga, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to Night Talk. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Wasang, and uh, good evening to your listeners. You had a very, very interesting week, and uh, there was something very. Uh, I, I want you to tell. I don't. I want it to be a surprise. Can you tell us what you what you were involved in this week? Because it says that you are a slash 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 hey, economist. Hey, I'm going to get into that in a bit because that also comes with its pitfalls. <laughs> sure, sure. And um, look, man. So we were involved in uh, uh, sort of the national minimum wage panel, mm-hmm. um, and we made our sort of announcement of our recommendation and the proposed sort of figure and framework for the national minimum wage on Sunday. Um, and I was traveling in the region on sort of Monday, so I was in Zimbabwe, um, and came mm. back late on Tuesday, um, and then to the sort of a TED Talk yesterday um, at River Sands Incubation Hub. Mm-hmm. So I've been sort of busy with that, and then in between sort of trying to sort of carry my camera along and, and snap away and at every opportunity that I get. Um, but yeah, man, so it's been a busy week. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, look forward to sort of closing the year off um, with I think, the same kind of intensity that we started with. Mm, I think I, I might have made a huge error by not starting by <laughs> saying that we are talking to our second South African doing great things who's trying so hard to be. I don't know if you're trying to be unassuming or, or humble, but this gentleman mentioned that he was speaking at a TED Talk. And uh, please tell us more about the TED Talk. We want to know about TED Talk. What's TED Talk? How did you get um, sure, uh, chosen sure. for it? And um, how do so, you feel made so such a... So initially yeah. I thought, you know, it was as a result of my own wits and as a result of sort of me being really intelligent. <laughs> yes, um, until I realized on Tuesday when my cousin called me that she'd actually sort of suggested my name to the organizers um, and they felt that, you know, I was someone uh, sort of interesting enough to invite to the session. Mm. Um, and I guess TED Talks is just sort of about a platform where people ch- share ideas, you know, um, about the great things that they're doing, innovative things. Um, and, and because we live in this sort of digital century and uh, mm. a century sort of marked by boundless access to information, um, a lot of those sort of um, conversations and the ideas that were spread there sort of related to technology and they related to innovations that were making a very important mark on people's lives. So, so I spoke sort of about something that I think relatively few people tend to speak about which is how sort of uh, all of these strides in, in technology can actually facilitate much greater exploitation of people. Um, and I think we've seen it, you know, across the globe with sort of the gig economy that we often speak about from Uber to Airbnb, mm-hmm. to sort of, um, you know, in this country, Sweep South and a range of other companies, which are, I think for me have, have really made a significant stride in terms of creating um, a large amount of convenience, but also there's an underlying human story, which... I really tried to convey and get across in the TED talk yesterday. What was the crux of those issues? And we know, uh, we know the the issue of data and how it's presented and how yeah. research, the nature of research, is always uh, driven by the people who invest in interests, and those interests won't in, uh, won't won't benefit us in se- essentially. So, exactly. Exactly. So, mm. so what I spoke about was um, you know a brief research project I had done a few months ago mm-hmm. um, around May. Where, and this was sort of around the time where metered taxi drivers, the established industry, um, was in conflict with the sort of uh, the Uber partner drivers who had sort of come into their turf and they felt that mm. you know, these, two, these new taking figures all those were mm. really sort of taking a piece of their turf. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, I think the media really didn't, didn't speak much about the side of the metered taxi drivers. And so I intentionally decided to go and speak to them and get their story across. 
Mm. Um, and that emerged in an article in the Daily Maverick um, sort of a few months ago. But I, I wanted to really reiterate that story mm. in light of um, sort of a dominant narrative that says, look, technology mm. you know, has the power to really eradicate, uh, for the first time, I think, in the history of the world, has the possibility of eradicating poverty. Um, and I felt that you know, the regulatory response from mm. our policymakers, and not only our policymakers, but even the, you know, the inability of our industry to really catch up with what technology is bringing, um, creates a situation where different parts of the same sector are regulated differently, mm. and that creates unfair comp- uh, competition. Mm. But also, I think, you know, I wanted to explore the relationship that partner drivers have with Uber mm. as the owner of the application, yes. which, you know, for every ride takes 20%. Um, and what we found was that, in essence, what is called a partnership, you know, is, is, is really an employment relationship because... You know, Uber, you know, Barron sitting in Silicon Valley mm. um, are really able to unilaterally set prices. Um, they're able to really disconnect and connect people at will. Mm. Um, and in many ways, I think, you know, the people who shoulder the risk in that transaction and in that relationship um, tend to be the drivers. So they carry an inordinate amount of that risk. You know, uh, so you end up paying for, for the installments of the car, you know, the maintenance, mm. the insurance and a range of other things. Um, and all you get in compensation for that is just 80% of every trip. Um, and even the, the, the price at which that, that trip is priced is something that you can't necessarily determine, and that's determined by someone you know, who, who is a partner in that relationship. And so for me, it was really outlining something that you know, is a partner, clearly not among equals. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think for me, you know, those are the things that... You know, it's not only a South African issue. I think, you know, two weeks ago, there was a judgment in New York yeah, that clearly indicated that, you know, the relationship that Uber has with its drivers is mm. clearly an employment relationship and there needs to be the associated risks and the associated wage-setting mechanisms that will allow for that to be defined uh, and to be within the law um, in terms of the uh, sort of labor legislation of the United States. So I think we also have um, sort of an uphill climb in terms of that. Um, and not only for Uber, but I think also some of the new companies some of whom are domestic companies that are coming into this new sort of shared economy, gig economy space. Um, you spoke also, man, that Uber discussion as well. Um, it's such a hectic one. Before I move away from it, we've heard from Uber drivers, we've heard from meter taxi drivers, and you talked about the regulations and that. Um, yeah. I've, I've talked with uh, extensively about this conversation with meter taxi drivers and Uber drivers, and you're talking about the digital divide and how it can be used optimally and how it's working against certain Indeed. infrastructures. Is it, is it fair to assume that are our meter taxi drivers being hard done by and is our government, in our, our, are our institutions protecting our meter drivers and our industry? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think in South Africa we like this whole heroes and villains narrative. Mm. And I think for me, you know, I, it's, not, it's not a very analytically helpful thing to do mm. um, because I think there's so much nuance in between. Mm-hmm. So in no way am I saying that, you know, the, the meter taxi drivers were well within their rights to be violent um, and to do some of the things which even some of their own associations said, you know, they, they don't endorse. Mm. But I do think that if we look at it from a regulatory perspective, you look at a meter taxi driver whose fees and fares are regulated by the transport authorities. Mm. Um, they need to be able to, to indicate what their starting point and what the end point is uh, for their work in order for them to get a permit. Whereas the model that Uber uses... Mm doesn't even lend itself to having, you know, a, a designated starting point. So if you know... I, I, sorry, I heard it was... Parlance, right? Isn't it the tra- transport department? Pardon? It isn't the transport department in charge of the regulation for when it comes to Uber? Indeed, indeed. Mm. And, I, and I think also, I mean, we, I've had an opportunity to really speak to 
to other drivers, for instance, in Cape Town, who started to organize themselves into something called the Cape Town Uber Drivers Guild. Mm. And they are saying that, you know, the, the ch- biggest challenge around this issue is that the regulation of the meter taxi industry is so heavily decentralized that what happens in Cape Town and the hoops that one needs to overcome in order to get a permit in Cape Town oh. might slightly differ from what happens in Port Elizabeth. And so it creates spaces for a company like Uber, which is able to, to sort of have learned to be agile in a lot mm. of different contexts, um, to just sneak into the space. Um, and, and, and it's really sad, I think, you know, that when we speak about some of these conversations where a lot of these drivers were actually saying and suggesting that there are incidences of capture of local transport authorities by the same uh, kind of company. Um, mm. And you find a situation where Uber drivers are actually driving around without permits um, and sort of not paying the necessary regulatory burden that other people in the established meter taxi industry need to, mm. need to adhere to. So I think that, that for me is where the, the real difficulty is. Mm. And I think if we look at our regulatory life cycle in South Africa, yes. you know, it takes, I mean, on average, close to two years for you to really get a process of regulation done from start to finish. Mm, mm, and mm, I think mm. with the advent of technology, you can't afford that two years, right? In yeah. that two years, so much will have changed and you'll have to change it again. So we need to really think creatively around how, you, how do you create agile and dynamic regulatory yeah. systems that are able to protect workers as a primary aim, right? It's, mm. It can't just be about, look, the convenience of those who can afford, mm. but on whose back does, does that necessarily rest? Who's the one who needs to make the sacrifice? And, is the and I think we've seen mm. it... We've seen it with a lot of uh, Uber drivers who sort of sleep with blankets in their boots because, you know, many of them approach it as a 24-hour thing. And you can already see the safety dimension that then becomes associated with this issue where someone is driving for more than 12 hours on the trot um, and, and, you know, that places not only their life at risk but the risk of, uh, of their clients as well. On the line, we have a, a development economist, Ayabong Akdawi, recently spoke to, uh, at, to uh, spoke at the TEDx Talks about the digital divide and how it's affecting uh, South Africa and how it can be partnering and also uh, an opportunity to, to alleviate the possi- possibility of alleviating poverty in itself. I, I'm just going to ask you, there's so much that uh, insight you've given us as well. I'm just going to ask you, to, if, you, if you can, in just one and a half minutes, you mentioned the national minimum wage. Yeah, it's very contentious issue because um, if we raise it, people have to be fired. There's so many aspects around it. Ninety <laughs> seconds, please. I'm so sorry to do this to you. <laughs> so I mean, look, I think for me, if I mean, look at some of the comments from people around this issue, it's clear that I think a lot of us don't understand why or what the rationale is for implementing a wage floor. Because in, in effect, that's what a minimum wage is, right? It's a floor below which no worker can be paid. Mm-hmm. You can't pay anyone beneath what, you know, once it comes into law, for instance, will become a sort of a wage floor in the economy. And I think one of the things that we also need to clearly outline is that a minimum wage isn't a living wage, you know. Um, it's a wage that is meant to really target workers that are working in vulnerable sectors. So you've seen, for instance, that 80, close to just over 80% of domestic workers earn less than the proposed 3,500. And I think you have a similar case in the farm workers sector. But of course, that's not the same as the mining sector, for instance, where, you know, if you look at the existing sectoral determination, some of the minimum mm. wages there are north of about 6,000 rand. So I think the issue here is really about saying, how do you create a wage flow across all sectors in society mm-hmm. and have a, an interesting conversation about our socioeconomic context that says, can we get to a consensus that says no one can be paid beneath a particular level? Uh, because I think we, we're seeing instances where people are either unemployed and even if they are in gainful employment, 
they are not able okay. to actually escape the trap of poverty. Right. And I think that's where that's where the policy is intended to go to.